0: To our Praxis podcast. Today, we will be going through the process of the pastoral framework. Um, this will help us evaluate the sign of the times and help us arrive at the thorough understanding of the social climate today. And this will lead to a clear discernment about how we ought to act. So, the starting point of liberation theology is the poor and their experience of poverty. In parallel with the pastoral cycle, the first step is to engage with the community. So we did this through the OSCE Praxis program and we engaged to the farmer community. So before we start, I would like to share a quote by a blessed Oscar Romero. He said that there are many things that can only be seen through the eyes that, that have cried. So through engaging with the community, it helped us empathize with them and have a sense of their struggle, which will then ultimately compel us to action, which we'll discuss by the end of this podcast. So the first person to share his experience with the community engagement is Elijah. So, Elijah, would you want to share?
1: Hi, thank you, Richard, for inviting me to your podcast. I'm a very big fan. So, um, in my community engagement with uh, Tatay Henry, I came into that uh, reflection or that uh, quentuan session with a preconceived notion of the plight of the farmers. I came into it expecting the worst of the worst. I came I came into it expecting that the, that he, among many of the other people in the sector are being exploited by multinational corporations, that they're being um that they're being subjected to poor labor laws or labor relations and that they're basically oppressed. And I guess that was my mistake because I I I perceived them to be the other. But what was so insightful about my community engagement was the fact that I realized that Tate Henry was more than anything, he was an exception to the rule. He he actually just came from finishing a degree in DLSU, which is by all means a very reputable academic institution. So I guess what, ultimately what I'm trying to say is what I got from the community engagement is the is the caveat of nuance, nuance in such a way that yes, well, do there are intrinsic problems that certain individuals of a certain sector face, they're still mediated. By certain other factors like socioeconomics. It was heavily implied that um, Tate Henry was, I wouldn't say well off, but he seemed independent. I he didn't seem to work in the typical multinational corporation. He seemed to, you know, march to the tune of his own drum, or if that's the right idiomatic the expression. But yes. Um, it definitely shows insight as to how while there are intrinsic problems that Farmers face; they are still um, experienced through degrees, and I think that's important in uh, how we arrive to a praxis. It has to be inclusive as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Elijah. Really, exploitation and oppression really takes on many forms. As you said, there are nuances, and people are exploited at different um, different ways. So, thank you for that and the next person to share is Shaina.
2: Hi everyone, I'm glad to be here. Uh, So following Elijah's point of nuance, I think with Tatay Ray, my speaker, for him he seems to be more in tune of the issues and more vocal about it. So in his talk he talked about first his daily schedule and more technical details of farming and actually similar to Elijah's speaker, he also shared his recent achievement of receiving his farming certification. And for me, that kind of indicated the importance of education for them too, which I had the wrong, I had the wrong conception that farming is not exactly unskilled labor, but educational degrees isn't as important for them, which was clarified to me in that speaker that it is. And it's a big achievement for them, showing like how, how proud he was to have achieved a certification. And within terms of nuance to the issues, uh, he was very well informed about the issues with the profession. And he seems to know exactly what he wants and needs in terms of support from the government. For example, he stated problems uh, with irrigation lines in many arable lands, which leaves those lands... Unused and technically just waste. And he also he also knew about the problems with execution in many government programs. Like for example, with mechanized farming, he knew exactly the problems, and he was very vocal to us about it. Especially with uh, like for example, ayuda timing, like with the fertilizers and other sources of support. And he was also very informed with the economic state of farming like with the price changes of the market he knows he knows exactly like not what exactly happens but he knows the sources of problems like for example if there are price dips within the market he knew that it's because there's importation and the the reason for those very cheap prices because they import from international sources rather than get from the farmers Uh, with his knowledge of all those issues it showed me that Yes, they are affected, and I I always thought that they were just like carried by the changes in their social structures. Like they they're not they're affected, but they're not aware. What Tatai Ray really showed me that they are very aware, not only of how it affects them, but also the causes. But there's not a lot that they can do, which is hopefully how we can help.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you, Shaden. No. Um... Uh, really, they're aware of, of their conditions and these causes, they just need um, people with them to amplify and their voices and lobby for change. So thank you for that. So for my speaker, I would like to share, um, I, I had the privilege to talk to Tatay Alvin Hines. He spoke to us about a day in his life. So he wakes up at 3 a.m. and he starts his day in farming, business, and taking care of his family in general. And then he ends the day in the evening. And this process repeats of waking up at 3 a.m. and then going home at 8 p.m. and ending the day there. So in my reflection, people keep calling farming and other jobs as unskilled labor. And I think this is just a way for capitalists to underpay their talents and exploit them. And in relation to this, in the session, he also described more exploitative structures that he said has existed ever since he started farming, such as seasonal income and insufficient government aid. For some of the farmers, they treat this as their norm, since since rallies for reform before have been ignored. But he expressed throughout um, his sharing that these structures really need to change, and this would involve cooperation from the private sector, the government, and and even the farmers themselves. So that's, that's basically the summary of my engagement with Tatay Alvin. So for the next guest, um, Val, since he couldn't be here, he sent in a recording instead, which will be played right now.
3: In my experience before meeting Tatay Henry, I can admit that I wasn't too knowledgeable when it came to the injustices taking place within the farming sector. I was glad to know that despite all of the areas of concern he covered in our session, it seems like members of his community are still staying resilient. Personally, my main takeaway was how the members of the sector are steadily moving towards agricultural modernization, which is, in my opinion, a good starting point for tackling issues such as low income as well as struggles that come with their livelihoods.
0: Okay, so thank you for that, Val. I really agree that agricultural modernization is what we should prioritize as some Southeast Asian countries are tough competition for our farmers in terms of technology and rice production. So in conclusion, for the first part of the pastoral action, these stories and engagement uncover the social structures that foster injustices. So given this, the next step of the pastoral cycle is social analysis. We really can't catalyze and promote social transformation if we don't understand the, stru- the structures we have to transform. Moreover, we need to do social analysis before theological reflection so that we can contextualize church teachings with the social realities we face. So Shaina, would you want to introduce what, stru- what um, framework we chose to analyze the farmer situation? Sure.
2: So we're using the social risk management framework. It was developed by UN, and they pro- they define poverty as a vulnerability to risk and inability to manage them. So the SRM framework concentrates on providing social protection so that the poor can prevent, mitigate, or cope with the sources of risk. So they define two types of capital and the risk so securities are your personal situation like your personal capital be it physical social or economic for example like good health stable income and sturdy housing Uh, those are usually where you draw our resources from whenever there are risks so being poor they would have less of these and be more prone to risk whenever like economic shocks happen or like natural disasters so those types of external factors would be, the term, would be termed risks. So examples would be like diseases, for example, COVID, very relatable to our situation right now, or maybe to their profession, like unstable employment, or like what Tatay Ray mentioned, like price changes in the market whenever they would be harvest season, or maybe something very relatable to us in the Philippines, like natural disasters like floods and typhoons. So that's what encapsulates social risk management. It's looking at securities and looking at risks. And given that the poor have less securities, what type of social protection can we offer in light of risks that happen to their lives?
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you very much, Gina. I think a social risk management framework really would be the most appropriate for this. Mm-hmm. Um, the social risk management framework will allow us to uncover the, the risks that come along with the social structures that oppress and marginalize our farmers so so val will now share um his his insights on the social risk management framework
3: farmers land is also often an area of conflict privatization when it comes to land and more specifically through the means of land-grabbing, has been taking place in the Philippines ever since the 1500s. When the Spanish began transferring lands over to private companies as well as wealthy families that maintained ties with the ruling class, there have been efforts towards agrarian reform, like the Comprehensive Agrarian Reform Law, or CARL, from 1988, the Agrarian Reform Special Account Fund of 1971, and even the formation of the Department of Agrarian Reform, but not much has changed. Karl's main agenda was to redistribute private and public lands to the farmers, but many plots of land still remain privatized and titled, which means these lands are exceptions to the redistribution program. As it is, the landowners maintain a great deal of influence over the political domain which has been trending ever since the colonial era. It's no surprise that they're reluctant to give up their lands and would much rather stick to their semi-feudal way of doing things. Because of this privatization of land, farmers are naturally exposed to some risks. The Yulo Sugar Estate in Calamba Laguna is a good example of this. The local people began farming on the land between the years of 1912 and 1916 but upon the arrival of the Yulo family in 1948, they were evicted from it. It's interesting to think that the family didn't have the official documentation of ownership of the land, but were able to get away with it because of their ties with government officials. Naturally, the farmers were put at no economic risk as per the social risk management framework, since they were stripped of income. Socially, they were also at risk when they received threats after making efforts to protect their properties. Some farmers in Kalamba are willing to defend their land as well as their homes from demolishment, with only their farming tools which puts them at physical risk. In another instance, the Yulo family, with all their influence in the law and judiciary enforcement systems of the Philippines, were even able to kill a leader of a local farmers' organization in April 23, 2013. In the end, poverty in the farming sector renders them vulnerable to the exploitation of the private sector, which greatly influences their way of living.
0: So thank you for that, Val. Um, Land grabbing, ever since the early days of Philippine um, development, has been a problem, and it continues up to today. And it's very difficult to get out of that situation um, without any inter- intervention from the government. So thank you for that. And as you said, um, um, the private- privatization of land causes um, and brings to light many risks that farmers have to face. So um, Elijah, would you want to share uh, yeah, your views? So. Yes. Oh,
1: so thank you, Richard. So in addition to what Val said about um, the Carl Law, I think it's interesting to mention how the Philippines came into this position, how everything came into fruition. So I guess the crux of this social analysis or my social analysis is that years of unfavorable legislation spurred contracts between um, landowners, corporations, and the government, which were pretty much unfavorable to the initial landowners or maybe even the indig- indigenous people who initially owned it. So territorial rights claimed by IPs could ev- eventually clash with the eminent domain right of a modern state. So the state may allocate large tracts of land within its territory for developmental programs. And more often than not, these are just capital capitalist incursions to generate income in exchange for using the natural resources. So in a um, if we look back like a broad and cursory overview of Philippine law, there seems to be a juxtaposition between legislation. It they create it creates a disjunctured situation where on one hand, IP's rights to the land by virtue of occupation is recognized, but on the other hand, this is also virtually taken away for for devel- for the sake of development. And I guess in to solve that, um the Aquino administration they did Um, they mandated the Comprehensive Argarian Reform Program, or CARP, which is similar to what Valo was saying. And it was an initiative put post-martial law. Its primary objectives were both the improvement of equity and the increase of productivity and growth in rural areas. However, this initiative has, for the most part, fallen short. Um, And for the past two decades, it's been Put into effect, and a lot of scholars and academics have said that in those two decades, that's when the agricultural um, sector of the Philippines is actually dragged along. And there's just so many problems with CARP. But moving on, um, it's really government capital and sectoral support that's really lacking. Uh, the skewed agrarian sector of the uh, the skewed agrarian structure of the country has long been a major problem, and within the Philippine context. Agrarian reform has often come short in minimizing the social inequity present. As I said, CARP has dragged on for over two years, or two decades, and this meant that the Philippine agricultural economy has suffered two decades of ill-defined and contested property rights, leading to highly uncertain investment climate in agriculture. Moreover, not there, intrinsically, there were several loopholes in the legal basis of CARP. And one of those is the limited area coverage of the law. And moreover, it tends to favor owner owner operator type and direct administration contracts, tenancy regulation prohibiting share tenancy was also imposed. And this was very advantage- disadvantageous to the farmers. And it only, when you look at it in retrospect, it only favored a small portion of the landowning class. And these mainly revolved around the the corporate and commercial farm farm owners and the rural middle class. And lastly, I I think the risk that they face is that while agrarian reform projects have had a somewhat successful impact on farmer beneficiaries, this does not relinquish their exposed risk to the vulnerability of farmers, to shocks, particularly weather-related ones. Owning land is not sufficient to minimize risks, while having higher incomes from diversified sources and higher savings are effective, there is also a need for some safety nets, particularly for the poor. Those safety nets would ensure that those hit by shocks like climate change need not to resort to coping mechanisms that would have long-term negative impact on their human capital as well as their productive capacity. And this, and I believe I'm echoing what um, Tate Henry, my speaker, said. While he does march the beat of his own drum, and he is in a way sufficient, He does, and he doesn't belong to the opposite end of the spectrum. He does complain about government infrastructure and their lack of support. So despite the economic welfare mission of CARP, it's very apparent that it's very lacking in encapsulating their risk, which is climate change, which I think should also be addressed. Um, another thing that um, Tata Henry spoke about was education. And I refer to education insofar that it's not, it it's slowly becoming um dogma that f- farmer uh, the agricultural sector isn't that profitable. So I believe that um in the risk and in the risk analysis we've put forth, there is also a need to entice a new generation of Filipinos to practice value-added agri- agriculture to replace. The current farmers expected to retire in a decade or so. But persistent poverty levels in agricultural areas have dissuaded the Filipino youth from pursuing opportunities in the sector. So in sum, I guess what I'm trying to say is uh much of the plight of the individuals in the sector is mostly due in part to inefficient government structures, and I think we should change that. So um yes, that's all I have to say. Thank you.
2: I, like, I really like what Elijah said about land, like giving them land is not enough. Uh, I think I, I had the misconception also that just giving them titles to land that they can till would be enough, but it seems like the government do need to support them in other areas, like uh, Ayuda or like what Tatay Ray, my speaker said about irrigation lines. It seems like it's not enough to just be giving land. They need a more uh, complete support, just as Elijah
0: said. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you, Sheena. To add to that also, um, there have been problems that farmers often just sell the land given to them um, by the government because they don't have any technology to, to maintain it and to, to grow crops efficiently. So all in all, government, and cap, cap, government capital and sectoral support is extremely lacking in the agricultural sector. And there are many risks that arise from this as Elijah mentioned. So lastly, I would want to discuss the economic problems that the farmers face that leave them vulnerable for financial collapse. So farmers generally have low income in proportion to the work they do, caused by two major reasons, which are are seasonal cash flow and small net income. First, they have seasonal cash flow. So due to the natural crop cycle, they can only harvest every three to four months And they have to make the income they have for the following months last. So more often, the income they gain is not enough to allow them to save and even have enough to get by before the next harvest, as Tatay Alvin shared. And the second one is a small net income. So this is caused by high prices, especially for organic products and high transportation costs and middleman expenses when it reaches supermarkets or wet markets in the city. So how do these... Um, factors heighten their risks. So this leaves them vulnerable to extreme poverty. So when a severe weather condition such, such as drought and typhoon occur, they can lose three to four months' worth of income. And if it's a really bad year, they can even lose half a year's worth of income. And even outside of natural conditions and calamities, they also don't have enough savings and safety nets for anything tragic that could happen to their family. So when a family member gets sick, they don't have contingency funds to, to support them. It's, it's, it's common in the provinces for families to sell land or sell their livestock just to support um, their family member who is sick. And once even if their family member gets better, um, they, they would have hindrances in recovering since they don't have um, their livelihood materials anymore. So, as Elijah mentioned, there are no safe social safety nets to protect them from all of this, which, which leaves them very vulnerable to to extreme poverty. So, I think that's our social risk management framework analysis. And just to just to recap all of it. So, we discussed um, issues from. Privatization, government capital and sectoral support, and lastly, we also discussed economic problems that reduce net profit and public demand. So, understanding the condition of the communities and uncovering underlying social structures that cause them, um, this allows us to see the present situation of the poor and also, also analyze the underlying structures. Beneath, the, beneath what they're experiencing right now. So for me, I observed that all of this is fruit of, generation, of a generational process of expl- exploitation and social marginalization. So with this, we, with this, the next step of the pastoral cycle is to analyze the social situation using the point of view of the gospel and the Christian perspective. So this discernment based on scripture and church teachings will help us shed light and take appropriate actions given what we just discussed. So from the beginning of the Vatican II, the Second Vatican Council offered us a fresh perspective and radical reforms in the Catholic Church, even with some opposition from conservative members of the community. So one of the pivotal church documents during the Second Vatican Council is the Gaudium et Spes. In itself, it was an attempt to read the sign of the times and articulate the church's best hopes for humanities. One of the key concepts emphasized the most was mutual distrust, conflict, and wealth inequities. So with these injustices, the document expressed the church's willingness to open itself to the contemporary world and serve the marginalized in concrete ways. In the same way, we should treat the social analysis and the community engagement we did as a quote-unquote sign of the times. We now know that the exploitative nature of farming affects hundreds of thousands, if not more, people in the Philippines today. And this is a clear sign of the times that we have to step in and change what we're doing right now. So the sign of the times are God sent messages through historical events, and we should listen to them and respond appropriately. However, a deeper meaning of these events can only be seen through the light of faith, which will be further elucidated by Shaena.
2: Okay. Uh, so with the light of faith, we're going to be going through some principles in Catholic social teaching to help us understand how do we feel and respond to seeing these sign of the times. So the first principle, which can be applied to all sectors, is... Human dignity is an intrinsic value of a person created in the image and likeness of God. And I think work and dignity is uh, closely tied, especially with the farming sector. So the principle that we'll be using is the dignity of work and the rights of workers. So the economy must serve the people, not the other way around. Since work is more than a way to make living, it is a form of continuing participation in God's creation especially with the farming sector, since they are very closely working with God's creation using nature and the lands. So if we must protect the dignity of work, then the basic rights of workers must be respected. For example, like access to decent and fair wages or to or, or organizations and joining of unions, to private property or to economic initiative. So these principles were... Uh, very much elucidated in works of popes such as John Paul II or Pope Francis. So with Pope John Paul II, in his work, Laborium Exorcis, Through Work, which he wrote in 1981, he showed that it is important to promote the dignity of agricultural work, since man subdues the earth much more when he begins to cultivate it and transform it to products. That, that, that phrase alone very much describes the work of farming so agriculture constitutes through human work as a primary field of economic activity and is an indispensable factor of production however it seems like we've thrown it at the side like agriculture is not seen as a very important industry when in fact it is the lifeblood of any society for example in many developing countries Millions, are, millions of people are forced to cultivate land that belongs to others, and they're exploited by big landowners. Moreover, like what Elijah has mentioned, the lack of legal protection for agricultural workers and governmental support is very much lacking. And what Richard mentioned, with old age sickness or unemployment, families often do not have enough economic safety nets to ensure that they can continue to support any risks in terms of health and diseases. So we need to restore the value of agriculture as a basis for a healthy economy. And Pope Francis also echoes this in a recent work, uh, Evangeli Gaudium, in 2013, that we shouldn't rely on giving support to these type of work through the unseen forces and the invisible hand of the market. We need to ensure that growth and justice uh, is not just economic growth, not in terms of allowing some people to get rich while others are left behind. Uh, we should always ensure that these social structures that arises from the economy are made with decision programs, mechanisms, and processes that are specifically geared towards a better distribution of income and the creation of sources of employment and an integral promotion of the poor, which goes beyond simple welfare mentality. So it just essentially says that welfare mentality, we're not supposed to think of them as doing charity work because farming is an essential industry and it should be elevated to a position that closely ties with its intrinsic value to a society.
0: Okay. So thank you very much, Shaina, for sharing with us Um, these documents and how it relates to um, agricultural work and their plight today. So the next, we'll listen to, once again, to Val's recording of, of of his take on theological reflection, specifically on scripture.
3: I think it's also good to look at this through a more biblical aspect. The challenges faced by the members of the farming community hearken back to and actively challenge our praxis. Amos's book is extensive when it comes to actively shunning Israel's oppression of the poor. It's also worth noting that poverty isn't the fault of the poor necessarily, but this is likely the effect of evil influencing people to trample over others for personal gain. Much like how the rich often exploit farmers for things like land, God is keen on punishing this behavior, as we can see in Amos chapter 3, verses 10 to 11, saying, For they do not know to do right, says the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall be all around the land. He shall sap your strength from you, and your palaces shall be plundered, while bleak Leaving our idols, such as money perhaps, or whatever persuades us to oppress the poor, we can still choose to shift our interests toward God instead of self-gratifying purposes. Hosea chapter 14, verse 4, states that the Lord says, Then I will heal you of your faithlessness. My love will know no bounds, for my anger will be gone forever. In initializing structural changes to our society, to take the burden off of the poor, we as a people will grow closer to God's intended direction for us. In essence, we are expected to rebuke injustice, which is accentuated by Micah chapter 6, verse 8, which says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God.
0: Okay, so thank you very much Val for, for sharing those verses and explaining how they relate to, to our discussion today. So the next person is Elijah, who will be discussing liberation theology and Catholic social teaching principles.
1: Hi. okay, thank you again Richard. And
0: uh, I guess I'll just add on
1: what Shaina said earlier about the, the core principle of CST. But before we do that, I think I should first talk or discuss liberation theology and how or why it's so prevalent in Philippine society. So, uh, I think the general consensus is that globally, the world has slowly moved towards a neoliberalist ideal. Neoliberalism is essentially this ideology that um, people can essentially get out of their problems by making economic decisions, by participating in the free market. But... Again, you can see how problematic that is when, from the get-go, you're not born with the same opportunities. Essentially neoliberalism has been critiqued by many to be disadvantageous to those who were born in a certain situation. Let's say they were born in poverty, they weren't born with the right opportunities or economic means to educate themselves and whatnot. It's it's very disadvantageous. And liberation theology is a counter to that. It's a school of thought that arose from, I think, as we all know, Latin America, and it's the necessity of incorporating this developmental framework. And moreover, it's a bias for the poor and oppressed, because when we take into context God, he's always on the side of the poor, and he comes down to live with them. Liberation theology does not begin through the entry point of any absolute perspective. Rather, it goes back to the people to think and reflect. Upon their experiences and realities, and better understand their problems in solidarity with the people concerned. Essentially, liberi- liberation theology is God talk- talks about God, it, it incorporates a grassroots approach, and it's largely based on the interpretation and real world application of Jesus' teachings and Marxist analysis. And uh, upon further reflection of using this framework, it it makes you realize the necessities to. In- Interact with small communities, particularly basic ecclesial communities. These are small units centered around the parish, where it, they aim for liturgical, transformational, and developmental progress. And yeah, that's just, that's very important, especially today. Um. So, with the when when we interact with basic ecclesial communities, I believe it's essential to. Uh, identify and just support uh, what they're doing. Uh, this may sound vague, but yes. And further, to add to what Shaina was talking about, the Catholic social te- teaching principles, I think it's also tantamount to mention the principle of solidarity. I think solidarity is fundamental to analyze social political structures. Um, as Pope Leo would say, he would always use the term friendship, or Pope Pius would refer to it as equally meaningful social charity. Pope Paul expounded the concept to cover the many modern aspects of this social question, which speaks of a civilization of love. The practice of solidarity is a necessary component of our faith. As Pope Benedict writes, love of neighbor consists in the very fact that in God and with God, I love even the person whom I do not like or even know. This can only take place on the basis of an intimate encounter with God. An encounter which has become a communion of will, even affecting my feelings. And that closing our eyes to our neighbor also blinds us to God. Francis even adds that willingness to lose ourselves for the sake of the other, it's, it's paramount. We must be able to lose our current situation. Like we must walk with those who are being oppressed by these social structures. And Benedict XVI adds that through solidarity, though it begins with an acknowledgment of equal worth of the other, comes to fulfillment only when I willingly place my life at the service of others. Essentially, at the most basic level, solidarity identifies how each person, or how each farmer should be encountered. Each is deserving of a particular attention and consideration. And moreover, as Francis wrote, it requires you to look at another and to give yourself to another with love. Benedict also tells us we are to encounter even those whom I do not like or even know. And it is from that jumping point, from solidarity, we are able to truly analyze the plight of these farmers. And um, in addition to that, it's subsidiarity. It's, I think, subsidiarity and solidarity must be linked to one another. Um, Pope Benedict asserts that this principle must remain closely linked that of solidarity, and vice versa. Since the former without the latter gives way to social privatism, while the latter without the former gives way to paternalist social assistance, that is determining to those in need." So, yeah, I think that's all I have to say regarding Catholic social teaching and its importance to integrate that with the Liberation Theological Framework.
0: Thank you very much, Elijah, for sharing um, the relation between liberation theology and CST principles and also, um, and also differentiating neoliberalism with liberation theology, since it's often mistaken with one another. Um, so, yeah. So, from our theological reflection, we saw that a perspective on liberation theology is necessary to bring the gospel to concrete human struggles today. The message we derive from the sign of the times is not just for the individual, but for the community and the whole world. These events, um, their injustices, should give us stronger reasons to rethink our ways of living and how it perpetuates oppression and, and how it hinders them from living their fullest life. So with that, this connects us to the next and last part of the pastoral cycle, which is pastoral action. So from the sectoral engagement, social analysis, and theological reflection, we now discern and express our concrete commitment to the reign of God here on earth. We will be discussing communal action that we need to lobby for, and also the personal actions that each of us can take immediately. So liberation theology emphasizes social transformation to actualize and unfold God's reign here on earth. It requires us a new way of living from egocentrism and thinking that we're the most important people, the most important species, our social class is the most important um, group of people, to a more God centeredness way of living. So, what does a God centeredness way of living mean? So, loving God with all your heart means also loving your neighbor, neighbors, even if it's difficult. So, act, act with justice and peace in mind and always. So for the community, I think what we can do is be in constant dialogue with the people around us and bring awareness to the plight of the farmers in hopes that it would push them to act in their own ways as well. So for my personal action, I will be more mindful of where I buy my farm products. Um, Why? Because some of the economic problems, as I mentioned a while ago, of the farmers stem from low profit margins. They are forced to sell their products at a low price to large companies with expensive middlemen fees. So what happens is, is I'll actually be paying a large price and all of this will just go to the multinational companies and the farmers will have um, a small profit margin only. So with this, I'll make informed economic decisions. I can do this by, by buying from social enterprises which put organic farmers first. Another one is to buy from co-op price producers instead of multinational companies to make sure that, that they get the right profit. And, and this would also support them in their farming. So in addition to what
1: Richard said, I believe that in order to mitigate the risk that these individuals in the sector face we must look at it from a socio-political perspective, particularly legislation and how it's implemented. So from a macro scale perspective, I think it was pretty evident from what I said earlier that legislation has its shortcomings, but what makes it especially shortcomings is the lack of insight, the lack of foresight rather, to see how its implementation may be problematic. And that's pretty evident with, as what Val and I said was CARP or CARL, since they're I think they're the same thing, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. So, yeah, um, the CARP program, which whose goal was economic equity or economic welfare, really fell short because they didn't they weren't able to see the foresight that it would not take just X amount of years, but double that. Because initially it was conceived to only take ten years, but it took twenty. And the way it was implemented, the the pervasiveness of legal loopholes actually served as a detriment rather than actually helping the sector it intended to help the farmers. So for me, I think that legislation needs to be um, bolstered; it has to be strengthened to actually favor who it's targeting. It, it we can't allow these um this the these corporations and these privately owned land owners to just exploit the law and get out of it. Like loopholes and stuff. I'm I'm no legal expert, but that's what came up upon the research. And moreover, it's the implementation of agricultural uh, agricultural reform. It has to be inclusive of everyone. Despite what I said about Tata Henry's plight, he may be the exception to the rule, but he doesn't represent everyone. So it has to really be inclusive. It has to be. It has to touch upon even the the poorest of the poor, the oppressed of the oppressed, as far as legislation is confer- is concerned, because um apparently it only the the or the laws right now in place only favor people who are in a position to um not be oppressed, such as Tata Henry. So on a micro scale, I think how we can alleviate the problem of legislation is to put competent officials in office, primarily those whose platform is geared towards the agricultural sector. Um and as what as with what Richard said. Um, informed economic decisions, buying from certain co-ops, organic farming, and in addition to that, I think we should support basic ecclesial communities, or we should be aware of these communities, so essentially within the context of liberation theology, these are uh, small, lay-led communities motivated by Christian faith that see themselves as part of the church and are committed to working together to improve their communities and to establish a more just society. I think it's from that starting point. It's from it's from starting on a micro scale. It's from trying to better a small community of farmers. We can elicit macro scale change. And this this may sound vague, but I think it's just being aware of what these communities are, where we can where they are, and we can depart from that and see what else we can do. So yes.
0: Okay. Elijah, thank you very much for your perspective. Um, on the legislation and how it can help the farmers. I remember this line from Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, she said that nothing changes if the law doesn't change. So our part, as you said, for the 2022 elections is very large. We'll will have, will have the power to change the trajectory of, of the Philippines in the next six years if we just vote for the right officials and if we campaign for them. Of course, we do this. Through contemplation and you know, in dialogue also, and being aware with with what's happening today. So thank, thank you very you. much, Elijah. Thank you. Um, the next one who will share her communal and personal action is Sheina.
2: Okay. Um, so following Elijah's point with legislation, uh, I also believe that legislation will be very important. But a phenomenon with the Philippines is that, uh, like what Elijah said, with loopholes. Legislation often doesn't exactly mean execution, especially here in the Philippines. Following legislation, uh, there should be execution in terms of the actions of government agencies. So I would just like, uh, speaking from the point of Richard, speaking about awareness, I would also like just to bring up the problems that Tatay Ray, my speaker, said. So he said the number one problem with a lot of lands is the lack of irrigation. So we are a rice consuming country, but that would mean we need good irrigation lines, but there are only few areas with well, irrigate, with well irrigated rice lands and the National Irrigation administration is neglecting lands that are arable but are but can be used, but they just they just lack water lines, so that leaves a lot of land uh, unable to be used even if they are owned by the farmers and Following the safety net, like the lack of safety nets, that from Elijah's point, that even if we give farmers their land, they still need loss for environmental reference, safety nets, in, uh, in the LGU level. For example, uh, Tatay Ray also said about Ayuda timing, not being coordinated with the planting and harvesting season. For example, they, they do have programs that give fertilizers, but they don't plan it well, and they only give the fertilizers after harvest season, which makes them essentially useless. Uh, moreover, uh, with the in terms of their equipment, there are a lot of farming mechanized farming initiatives that have been planned. But in terms of ex- execution, they have they haven't given enough to the farmers so that they could in uh, they could make their farming techniques more modern. I think the main problem that Tatay Ray said was that they don't give machinery to smallhold farmers, only to like associations. And the problem with that is smallhold farmers still cannot access these machinery because they need capital to enter these associations because they have large entry fees. So essentially, even if the government do give machinery to initiate mechanized farming, the smallhold farmers still cannot access these and they cannot do anything with their lands because it lacks water it lacks fertilizer seeds and it lacks the tools that they need to to make uh, to grow crops uh, from that uh, I think my personal act like, sorry wait. so in terms of communal action my main point, point would be that legislation is the start but execution in lower levels and in government agencies ensures that these laws translate to actions f- for the farmers in terms of support uh-huh. and the welfare that they need and in my personal action since I'm I'm not exactly involved in the government and there's nothing I can do right now all like what my first action would be bring awareness uh, speaking of the problems that Pate Ray cannot speak of and like giving it to a wider audience in terms of something I can do it, tangibly. It's something in line with Elijah and Richard, which is uh, eliminating the middleman, which is buying from directly from farmers. Recently, there has been a movement where there's a rise in online shops and website and home delivery systems. This allowed many online platforms to emerge that you're allowed to buy produce directly from farmers and I think the main advantage for them is that it ensures that the profit margin that they get is not eaten up by the cost by middlemen and by multinational corporations if they have to go through that route. Buying directly helps ensure that all of the profit goes to them rather than to some some corporation.
0: Mm -hmm. Thank you very much, Ina, for really bridging um, legislation to um, implementation and sharing your own personal action. Thank you. So the next person who will share is, again, Val, um, through his recording.
3: When I think about it, I think small-scale farmers can benefit from more farmer cooperatives as they are able to get a more desirable income from their crops after pooling all their resources together. These farmer organizations could then work to better utilize the support services they gather from the likes of the government as well as NGOs. Furthermore, farming cooperative leaders often lack accountability. Most of these cooperatives and associations are simply formed for the sake of government dole outs. Government agencies like the Cooperative Development Authority or CDA could work to better provide oversight for these cooperatives by shifting their focus away from simply imposing regulations on these associations. Personally, I took to liberation theology's notion of, to understand the poor and to begin taking action, one needs to learn from them by learning to see things through their eyes. That's why I feel inclined to maybe volunteer in an organization that has its focus on supporting local farmers. I've been checking out Rise Against Hunger, an organization that aims to end hunger by aiding the vulnerable. Since the Philippines is primarily agricultural-based when it comes to food systems, it's not a surprise that they work together to cater to farmers and their livelihoods. Their Farm to Fork program, for example, aims to increase the income of small-scale producers in order to help with rural poverty. I hope to volunteer specifically in one of their programs that tends to farmers' financial needs but also empowers them to grow their own food, which I think is a step towards overall sustainability
0: uh, thank you for that val for sharing how we can help through these small farmer organizations and even for freely pledging your so, your action um, in in joining and and participating in these organizations. So all in all, thank you for sharing your well discerned pastoral actions. I know we can carry this out through bringing awareness in social media, connecting with organizations and voting in the 2022 elections. This will be a step forward to breaking down sinful social structures that we discussed and ultimately unfolding God's kingdom here on earth. So I have, So before we end, Do you guys have any last words or reflections? Um,
2: I think I would just like to share a quote that I found very nice from Donald Dore from his writing, A Balanced Spirituality. So a lot of the problems within terms of faith is that people focus too much on personal faith and forget the social aspect. So what he said was, A proper balance and integration of all three is the basis for a truly Christian spirituality. And this is more important than ever in today's world. If I am not religiously converted, or if in this aspect of my conversion is inadequate, then I am allowing false gods to rule my life, ambition, or greed, or anxiety. So this speaks of personal faith. Uh, He follows, if my moral conversion is absent or inadequate, then I remain distrustful and close to others or else I am unfaithful, unreliable, disloyal. So this, this speaks of our personal relationships with the people in our immediate sphere. And this part is the most important. So he says, if I am not properly converted in the political sphere, then I, I will assume that religion is just a private or interpersonal affair. And so I will condone the structural injustices of society. So if we're not So he says here, is that if we are not politically politically converted in our faith, we will think that religion is a safety net for them, that they can just pray to their God and hope that their problems can be solved. And this relieves us of the responsibility of helping. So I think all these, the whole pastoral framework helps us understand that we need also reach political conversion in our faith.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you very much, Shane. And in connection to what you said, it sounds very similar to the Ignatian value of being contemplatives in action, which is very big in Ignatian spirituality. So this shows us that we should overcome dichotomies, that justice and prayer are different. Prayer and connection with God is a part of life, and our life flows out of prayer. And prayer is intimately linked with our yearning to stand up for what is humane, for what is humane and what is just for our fellow brothers and sisters. So, um, does anyone else want to add to that?
1: Um, I think I'd like to add something. Um, this is in relation to every, whatever, what you all said. So, our acting in society first requires belief, access, acceptance, and the integration of God in all facets of our life. And I would like to quote Benedict XVI on what he said. He said, the human person must work must involve himself in domestic and professional concerns, to be sure, but he has need of God before all else, who is the interior light of love and truth. Without love, even the most important activities lose value and do not bring joy. Without a profound meaning, everything we do is reduced to sterile and disordered activism." And I think what he says here is a poignant point of contention because um, it really enriches our activism, our advocacies our humanitarian, I guess, humanitarian inkling to do what is good for the other, if we center it on faith, on God, it's far more meaningful that way. And if we put God at the center of all our actions, I think if that's our point of departure, it will, inevit- it will inevitably lead us to making informed decisions to better or further advance um, what we would call the common good. Um, So yeah, I really believe that centering our action, our advocacy on faith or faith in action and in a practice, in a praxis, um, not only enriches the action we take, but also guides us on what we can do. So thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Elijah. So I think that ends our discussion for today. But before we end, I would just want to share this thought or this quote that's been mentioned throughout the discussion boards and even our live sessions. It says that if you can't transform the pain you see and experience into action, you will pass on this pain to society. So this emphasizes the need for the pastoral circle and um, reflecting on it. This won't be the, so with that being said, this won't be the last time we'll use the pastoral cycle. It is actually a useful tool for us to continuously convert our experience and empathy into positive action and catalyze change in society so with that I hope we can help in breaking down these unjust social structures and ultimately contribute to unfolding God's reign here on earth so thank you so much and I hope the pastoral circle is not just a learning process but a process for us to, to to do these actions and go out to farmers and reach out to them and really help them so thank you so much Val and Shaina and Elijah for participating in this thank you thank you for inviting me to your podcast thank you
2: thank you this was a nice learning experience about the pastoral cycle